0: It's one of the time-tested traditions of kids gathering around campfires in the summertime. Uh, You see it in TV shows or movies, books all the time, and around probably every campsite across the country. I'm not talking about singing songs or roasting marshmallows, but I'd be pretty surprised if many of us have not taken part in this at one time or another. See, sitting around the crackling fire with pitch darkness all around us, behind our backs, makes the perfect setting and atmosphere for ghost stories. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Now, for some bizarre reason, kids love to freak themselves out. Uh, Most of us have done it, right? Uh, We get this thrill out of telling the spookiest, scariest stories we can think up. Now, I don't believe in ghosts, at least in the the same way that many people would. But I have a feeling that if any of us, if, if we found ourselves in what we thought was a real ghost encounter, we wouldn't find it very thrilling or amusing. We would be very frightened. Because death, spirits, the unknown, all these things, they're all frightening to us. Now, did you know that ghost stories have been around a long time? In fact, you could say that there are even some in the Bible. In the passage we'll read today, Jesus' disciples were convinced that they were in one. Okay? They were convinced. They were spooked. They were paralyzed with fear, thinking they saw a real ghost. But, as it turned out in reality, it was about the furthest thing from a ghost story you could ever think up. By the end of this encounter, the disciples wouldn't be afraid, they'd be amazed. And they would no longer be upset or scared, they would be empowered and bold. So let's turn together to Luke 24. If you have a Bible, you can turn there with me, Luke 24. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the pew in front of you, and you can find the passage we'll be in on page 885, last page in the book of Luke, page 885, and we'll be starting partway through in verse 36 today. So go ahead and turn to there, find your spot, and once you find your spot, hang on to it, and we'll pray together first. Heavenly Father, as we look into your Word once again this morning, I pray that you would open our eyes, you'd open our minds to see your truth, to understand it, that you would move us by your Spirit. We pray that you would convict us, that you would encourage us, that you would inspire us, you would move us to our mission. God, we thank you for what you're doing in our lives and for what you'll do this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today's passage picks up right where last week's left off. So it's late on Easter Sunday, late evening probably. Jesus had died three days before, been laid in a tomb by some of his disciples. But then on this morning that we're reading about, a group of women disciples had gone to the tomb early and they had found the tomb empty. And the angels declaring that Jesus was alive. But when they ran off to tell the disciples, the other disciples, they were met with disbelief. And we saw this a couple of weeks ago in verse 11. The women ran off, and the, the other women told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Meanwhile, some of the disciples decided to head home. Probably giving up hope. And we met, we, excuse me, we met two of them last week on their memorable journey home to Emmaus. The risen Jesus met them on the road, but they didn't recognize him. Quite an incredible encounter. And after listening to their crushed hopes, Jesus decided to correct their faulty expectations by taking them on a journey through Scripture. And we read in verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Later, the disciples described this as though he had made their hearts burn within them as he opened the scriptures to them. When they invited him to stay overnight with them, he joined them for dinner. And uh, after he broke bread, we saw God open their eyes. They recognized Jesus. But as soon as they realized who Jesus was, Jesus, poof, disappeared. When they realized the truth, that that Jesus' death hadn't been in vain, that it was all part of the plan, that Jesus was, in fact, the, the center of this whole plan of redemption, of the center of history, of the center of Scripture, and that Jesus was indeed risen, They couldn't just sit there, stunned. They had to tell everyone else. Couldn't keep quiet, like the women had earlier. So, we read that they hurried back to Jerusalem. Verse 33. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now, we don't know exactly how the other disciples were handling this report. Really... They didn't even get the chance to respond because look with me in verse 36. As they were talking about these things, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. This is a sudden Shocking appearance. Jesus showed up out of thin air, as if he supernaturally teleported into the room. Growing up, the devious and mischievous side of me loved to try to scare people. (laughs) And, And by scare, I'm not talking about terrifying them. I'm talking about trying to startle them. Or surprise them, right? Hiding around a corner or in places they don't expect me to be and then jumping out, boo! <laughs> the higher they jumped or the louder they screamed, the bigger kick I got out of it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they show these videos of this on America's Funniest Home videos all the time. I find those the funniest videos. <laughs> it's just super funny to me for some reason. But anyway, I find this scene humorous. Just because I'm wired that way. Jesus, it says, Jesus himself stood among them, like instantly, poof, and said to them, peace to you. And they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. They must have jumped a mile. (laughs) Maybe even let out some stifled screams, right? And boo is the right word because they thought they saw a ghost. That's what the word spirit means there. Some translations will tell you they, they thought they saw a ghost. They thought they saw a dead person. Okay? But it wasn't a ghost, was it? It was, as verse 36 said, Jesus himself in the flesh, with an obviously special glorified body, right? He could do extraordinary things, like this ability to just appear and disappear at will. But whether or not Jesus wanted to startle them, he wasn't there to frighten them. Otherwise, the first words out of his mouth wouldn't have been, Peace to you. Peace to you. There's a chance that Jesus was just reciting the usual everyday greeting, like shalom. Right? But I doubt it. As do most commentators. It seems like more than that. J.C. Ryle Says, I am quite unable to regard this expression as being nothing more than the ordinary salutation of courtesy. It seems to me to be full of deep and comfortable truth. Peace to you. After the way Jesus' disciples had treated Jesus in his final hours, he had every right to show up angry with them why do you abandon me? why do you deny me? why you why'd, where were you when I needed you the most? but he didn't. he showed up and his first words communicated grace peace to you peace. he wasn't angry with them. He he still wanted them as His friends, as His disciples. He came offering peace. I think this is especially the case because He had one eternal peace on the cross. As Romans 5.1 tells us, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. They, in this moment, needed to accept that peace that He was offering them. But as we saw... There was nothing peaceful about their response. They were startled and frightened. Now you'd think that after the reports that they had heard that day that they wouldn't be shocked to see Jesus. Right? They've been hearing all these reports that he was alive. Whether they believed it. This just goes to show how much they didn't believe yet. But as we'll see, they'll come around. They needed to come around. That, that is why Jesus had appeared to them right then, why he was standing among them. The resurrection was real, and he needed them to believe it. This story is in our Bibles mainly because it is an eyewitness account of the resurrection. That's why Luke includes it here. Every point we're going to see from this passage is actually related to that, related to the resurrection, to Jesus' new life. And the resurrection was a life altering, world shaking event. And it was about to impact Jesus' followers in a very dramatic way. Here's the first simple point, simple truth I think we can clearly understand from this passage that Jesus' resurrection is a physical reality. Okay, we talked about Jesus' resurrection as a historical fact, but more so it is a physical reality. Okay? Jesus knew his disciples' thoughts and emotions in this moment. Look in verse 38. As they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost, he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Jesus' death had left his disciples in total despair. They were still deeply troubled. They may have wanted to believe, but they knew that dead people don't just come back to life. So even as Jesus himself appeared amongst them, their skepticism was prevailing. Their minds were quickly brainstorming other possible explanations. Like, that can't possibly be Jesus, so it must be a ghost. But Jesus gently rebuked them for their doubts. Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? I think if if we have doubts about our faith, this is a good question to ask ourselves. Doubt is natural. Yeah, we, we all experience it at times and at different seasons in our lives. But w- once we acknowledge our doubt, we're always called to move back, continually move back to faith. It's okay to doubt as long as we're moving back to faith. So we should ask, why are we troubled? Why do doubts arise in our hearts? Why? And so, we ask this so that we can address our doubts and keep moving back to faith, to correct faith in God and His Word. Jesus addressed His disciples' doubt by offering them some proof in verse 39. Why why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. So, so you don't think I'm the same person who died a couple days ago? Look! Okay. You think I might be a ghost? Okay, Can you touch a ghost? Come, touch me. And in case there was still any doubt, look what Jesus does next. And while, in verse 41, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Why do you think he did this? Do you think Jesus needed to eat? No. He wanted to show them that he could eat. Because ghosts don't eat fish and chips. In Luke's sequel, the book of Acts, he said that after his suffering, Jesus showed himself to the apostles and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. These were some of them. Many convincing proofs that he was alive. Now, we believe as Christians that we are each one of us are made up of both a body and a spirit, or a soul. You could say that the body is the physical house that the spirit lives in. And there's nothing physical about the spirit. Okay? It usually can't be seen, and it definitely can't be touched, or eat, or do anything else that physical bodies do. In a sense, spirits are immortal. Okay? They live on after our bodies die. The point here is, spirits don't have flesh and bones, but Jesus did. This is important. This was the same body and soul that had gone to the cross and physically died. Now, 100% of Jesus was physically risen. His body and his soul had been reunited. Sure, his body wasn't the exact same as before. We saw this. It's been gloriously transformed. But it was the same body. Okay? It was the same person, now the whole, real, human person. Now, some of us might not realize this. Jesus, in heaven, right now, still has a glorified, physical body. Have you ever thought of that? He still has flesh. He still has bones. He still has blood flowing through his veins. He, and most strikingly, He still has scars. Therefore, the salvation that Jesus offers isn't only a spiritual salvation, it is also a physical salvation. We are both bodies and souls, and we sin as both bodies and souls. Therefore, both our bodies and souls need to be saved. We need physical and spiritual salvation. And though our souls are saved the moment we believe, our bodies still need to be redeemed. You know when that happens? Resurrection. And it's Jesus' resurrection that guarantees our own. One day Jesus will return to Earth, and the righteous will be resurrected to eternal life. Romans eight twenty three tells us we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of what? Our bodies. The redemption of our bodies. This is amazing. Okay, this also tells us that f- physical existence our existence as bodies, is not inferior to spiritual existence. In other words, we aren't just souls trying to escape our bodies. No, we are souls awaiting the full redemption of our bodies. Life after death isn't going to be some ethereal, mystical, shadowy existence. Resurrection life is solid and substantial, more real than anything we experience now. Do you notice how the disciples responded to all this? Verse 41 said, And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. (laughs) What a wonderful description of their extremely mixed emotions. They couldn't believe it, but they had to believe it. They disbelieved for joy. So in other words, their joy nearly overwhelmed their faith. They hadn't believed before because things just seemed too good to be true. The reports were were too good to be true. Now things really were too good to be true. It, It was unbelievable. You know when someone says today, I can't believe it. That's what Luke meant when he said they disbelieved. I mean, they believed now. They had to. But they they just had to shake their heads. (laughs) I can't believe it. Jesus being alive caused so much joy to flood their minds. It says they marveled with wonder. The early church, Father Augustine, put it this way, while they were still flustered for joy, they were rejoicing and doubting at the same time. They were seeing and touching and scarcely believing. We weren't there in that moment, so we obviously don't feel the exact same way they did. But the resurrection should absolutely evoke joy and wonder in our hearts if we have no emotional response to the resurrection, we haven't truly grasped it yet. Or maybe we simply don't believe that it is as real as it is. The physical reality of the resurrection should erase our doubts. It should make us amazed, passionate, at peace. Even in the face of death here and now amaze us. Some churches teach that the resurrection is not not a real history shattering event, but that instead Jesus' death, after Jesus' death, his disciples experienced his presence in some special way. As if they felt that Jesus was with them somehow. They felt forgiveness, and they felt hope, and, and so on. And then they over the years, they developed these set stories of the resurrection that symbolically represented those spiritual truths. You cannot read Luke 24 and come away with that conc- conclusion. Because what we have here... Is a physically resurrected Savior with real flesh and bones. Jesus' resurrection is real. It's much more than a symbol or a mindset or merely spiritual reality. It is real in every sense of the word. And therefore, so is our future resurrections. If you've got loved ones who have passed away, take this to heart. We do not have an empty, ethereal, insubstantial hope. Our hope has flesh and bones. We are dust to dust, as the saying goes. But dust is not our end. Glory is. We are dust to dust to glory. I want to be in the upper room that night watching Jesus devour some broiled fish. What a mundane activity that was communicating such an incredible truth. But Jesus didn't just leave it to his actions to communicate truth to his disciples, to reveal truth to them. After his quick little snack here, he began to teach them. For the final time that Luke records... that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Now, does any of that sound familiar at all? Some of this is fairly repetitive of what we've studied lately, but the repetition just shows us how important it is that we understand Jesus' point. This is really key. This is the primary truth that Jesus wanted to communicate after his resurrection. So it bears much worth in repeating. This is the way I put it from this passage. So first, Jesus' resurrection is a physical reality, but also Jesus' resurrection was a supernatural fulfillment. Okay, was a supernatural fulfillment. This is, of course, speaking of Scripture, as well as the many prophecies Jesus had made himself. Jesus' death... And resurrection were a supernatural fulfillment of God's Word. As we've seen, Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection on numerous occasions. And the Old Testament also prophesied that the coming Messiah had to suffer and die. The devil had to be crushed. The law had to be fulfilled. Sins had to be atoned for. We saw the Passover and the sacrifices and all the blood. They were all foreshadowings of Christ. And his redemption. And then, there were plenty of hints along the way that once the Messiah was crushed, he'd also be exalted. And he wouldn't stay dead. He would be raised in power. But the disciples, along with many others, had developed these misplaced expectations. They expected the Messiah to conquer. Not be killed. So, what Jesus had done was messing with their minds. It didn't fit their framework and their expectations. So Jesus, as we saw, had to show them how it all fit together, what God's plan actually was all along. Like last week with the Emmaus travelers, he had to connect the dots for them. Okay? And once he was done connecting the dots, the picture that was revealed was a picture of himself. Verse forty four. And he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. All of Scripture, the Law, the Prophets, the Psalms, everything pointed to him. But it turns out, there is a reason that the disciples hadn't understood all this yet. In Luke 18... Jesus had clearly predicted his death and resurrection to his disciples, but then the very next verse after that said, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. In another place, Luke says, the truth of Jesus' sayings was concealed from them. Hidden, concealed. So, God didn't want them to grasp it yet. In his sovereign wisdom that could wait until now. Their eyes have been blind. Their minds have been closed. But here we read in verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus graciously opened their minds to understand what he'd been talking about all along. In order for any of us, to truly understand Scripture, or in particular, the Gospel, God must open our minds to understand His truth. Without His Spirit opening our eyes and minds to Him, we will stay blind and ignorant. That's why I pray for this every week, that that He'd help us. He'd help us to understand, to interpret the truth. That He'd soften our hard hearts that he'd enable us to hear him, to receive from him. We vitally need this supernatural mind opening, and I can't do it for you. Okay, You can't do it for yourself. Only God can. So, may he do that in us today. You might wonder, why would Jesus, after his resurrection as this, this powerful symbol, this sign of power and everything, why would he make this beeline to Scripture? He did the same thing last week too. Why all this emphasis on God's Word? Now, there are probably lots of reasons for this, but I think one would be Jesus didn't want his followers' beliefs to be based only on personal experience. Their personal experience was important, but it was not ultimate. And He wanted their faith to be based on the rock-solid, objective truth of Scripture. Kent Hughes says, resting their faith on a miracle was not sufficient. He wanted them to ground their experience of His resurrection on the massive testimony and perspective of Scripture. Now, some of us today maybe basing our faith merely on a personal experience we've had in our lives. Something we've had or felt. There's nothing inherently wrong with these experiences, but our faith needs a much more solid grounding than just experience. Otherwise, the first major trial that comes along that contradicts our previous experience can shatter our faith. Our faith needs to be firmly grounded on the God-spoken, authoritative truth of Scripture. Our hope needs to rest squarely on the promises of God. Nothing else will do. Jesus said in verse 46, He said to them, Thus it is Written. What was written? Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Scripture said that Christ would die and rise again. Therefore, Jesus did die and rise again. And if we come to truly understand those words, we understand the whole gospel. If we can see the brutal hand, scars in his hands and his feet that are now healed. We can see the scars, but see that they're healed. They can reveal to us that Jesus died, and yet also that Jesus is risen. As the hymn sings, rich wounds yet visible above, in beauty glorified come, see his hands. See his feet. The scars simultaneously show us the cost of our sins and also the reach of God's love and power. If our minds have been opened, Jesus' resurrection should begin to erase our ignorance. However, the gospel demands a further response than mere understanding, and we can see our necessary response quite clearly in Jesus' words to his disciples here. Did you notice that part of what Jesus said is written had already been fulfilled, but the second part was yet to be fulfilled? Okay, look in verse forty-six. It said and he said to them, "Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, suffer and on the third day rise from the dead." Done and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. At this time, yet to happen. The disciples would play a key role in fulfilling the second part of this saying. And as part of the church that Jesus began, we are still fulfilling this role today. It's ongoing. Here's the third thing that this tells us about Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection sparks repentance and guarantees forgiveness. the resurrection impacts our lives. It sparks repentance and guarantees forgiveness. The disciples had a message to spread. It was a message of repentance and forgiveness. But notice, it wasn't the disciples' message. It was Jesus' message. It was to be proclaimed in his name. In his name, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now, repentance and forgiveness are two absolutely necessary parts of the gospel message. If your gospel misses one of these, you miss the gospel. First, we must repent. You don't know what repentance is. Repentance goes hand in hand with faith when we're saved. If we truly believe in Christ, we naturally repent of our sins. You can't have one without the other. You can't have faith without repentance, and you can't have repentance without faith. Wayne Grudem defines repentance as, Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and it's a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. Repentance, like faith, is an intellectual understanding that sin is wrong, an emotional approval of the teachings of Scripture regarding sin, so a sorrow for sin and a hatred of it, and a personal decision to turn from it, a renouncing of sin, and a decision of the will to forsake it and lead a life of obedience to Christ instead. If that sounds overly complicated, it's really not. Just think of it as a conscious 180 degree turn away from sin. Okay? we understand that sin is wrong. We feel, we emotionally feel wrong in our sin. And thus, we decide to forsake sin. That's repentance. When we see Christ's resurrection... We understand what it costs him to pay for sin. It's death. It compels us to want to live differently. It makes us despise sin. And if you haven't done this, then I would submit to you that you are not yet saved from sin. We must repent. But not only does Jesus' resurrection spark our repentance, it totally guarantees our forgiveness. And that the first part of the message, it should be convicting. But the second part is freeing. Jesus' scars aren't just a reminder of sin's ugliness. They are a reminder that sin has been beaten. And you, you know what Jesus' resurrection tells us? It tells us that no matter what sins you've committed in your life, or how many, that no matter what you've done in your life, no matter how bad you've been, or how good you've been, and you tried to hide your badness by doing your goodness and all that, no matter what you've done in your life, you can be forgiven. And that if you believe, you will be forgiven. Guaranteed. Why? Because Jesus' death paid for that sin. And he lives to offer us grace. So, pride, violence, adultery, rage, greed sexual immorality, abortion, slander, whatever the case may be. The resurrection was God's stamping on our statement of debt, paid in full. Jesus paid it all. Really, God's forgiveness is on both sides of our repentance. If you think of it this way, Jesus died to secure forgiveness. He rose again to guarantee it. He offers it to us freely. And then when we respond by repenting and believing, He floods us with His forgiveness. So our repentance is in a forgiveness sandwich. We are surrounded on both sides by God's grace. This is all really good news. Because if it weren't for Jesus' resurrection, we would all still be dead in our sins. There would be no hope. Sin, death, and hell would all still hold sway, but they don't. This is really good news that needs to be proclaimed to everyone, everywhere. And that happens to be the final thing that Jesus emphasized in his little talk here with his disciples. That is that Jesus' resurrection inspires spirit-empowered witness. The resurrection inspires and invigorates our witness through the power of the Holy Spirit. The message... Of Jesus' death, resurrection, repentance, and forgiveness needed to be proclaimed. You've seen this time and time again, but look one more time, verse 46. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. In other words, make sure everyone hears. Make sure everyone hears. By God's grace, this has been one of the defining characteristics of our church, Calvary Baptist Church, for 100 years. 100 years, actually, this upcoming Wednesday. We might have been known for many things, some good, some bad, over this last century. But overall, people knew that if they came to Calvary, Jesus would be proclaimed. You'll see this in our anniversary motto that we put together, proclaiming Jesus for 100 years. I hope, I pray, that this is what we're known for for the next 100 years. See, Methods and ministries may change, but the message must never change. If you think about it, the fact that Churches like ours that exist all over the world is proof of Jesus' words here coming true. Because the proclamation did not begin here in Ottawa. Didn't it didn't begin in Canada, didn't it begin in the States or Europe or anywhere else. It began in Jerusalem. And from there, it spread out to reach the farthest corners of the earth. Jerusalem was God's beachhead. Jerusalem was... Ground zero. And it spread like an epidemic. Pandemic. Across the world. Like an outbreak of a highly contagious disease. You know, like how a disease starts in one specific location in the world. It always begins somewhere with one person in particular. And then, and then someone else catches the disease from them. And then passes it on to someone else. And then to someone else and someone else. And then someone drives across the country not knowing they're carrying it. Someone jumps on a plane flight. Pretty soon the the pandemic's just spreading uncontrollably. The gospel message was like this. Except that it wasn't a disease, it was the cure. So are you contagious? We should be. We've caught the bug from Jerusalem. Jesus then told his disciples, Repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. They were eyewitnesses. The story to tell. We aren't witnesses in the exact same way, as we haven't seen him with our own eyes But we are still witnesses of the risen Christ. We are ear witnesses and heart witnesses. We have the reliable reliable testimony of eyewitnesses, which God calls us to trust. We're also witnesses in the other usage of the term as those who spread the message. Whenever we talk about Jesus saving us or we share the truth, we are bearing witness, witnessing for him. But we often, if you're like me, we often feel overwhelmed by this task. To to spread the gospel or evangelize. We're scared of it. Probably many reasons. Fear of man, fear of rejection, ignorance, whatever you have. But that's why... The good news is that we're not alone in this. Look at the final words of Jesus and Luke here, which are a promise. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. By this promise of my Father. Jesus was referring to the promised Holy Spirit. God had made the promise that he himself would come and dwell within us. And that God himself would empower us to live and speak for him. See, we are all insufficient witnesses for Christ. We are nothing on our own. We all feel that. Okay? But with the Holy Spirit living inside of us, We are given power to proclaim the message of the gospel. Jesus said that when the Holy Spirit came, which he did about 50 days later at Pentecost, you read about in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit came, all believers would be clothed with power from on high. In other words, it's something that is outside of ourselves, from heaven, that infuses us with power. It's not in ourselves. It's not in our own strength. It's not in our own education, our own wisdom. It is outside of us, from heaven, that clothes us with power from on high. Daryl Bach says, after the gospel comes a life of mission that reflects and proclaims the hope that God created through Jesus. God has given his message to those who know him, along with the provision to proclaim that message. So if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, then you have been clothed with power. It's him. It's him. That gives us the words to say. It's as we bear witness for Christ. It's Him that moves in people's hearts to believe the message, to receive the message. It's Him that enables us to endure if we suffer for the gospel. And it's Him that provides the harvest. If there's any fruit at all, it's of the Holy Spirit. It's not us. We don't need to be intimidated by witnessing. We need to be inspired to witness. And all the while, we have to rely on Him. It's not our words. It's not our power. It's the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. So who can you tell this week? Even today, Because we are all witnesses of incredible things. We might not have been in the upper room with the disciples on that unforgettable night. But we can still see this in our mind's eyes by faith. We can, can see the scars. And when we behold the scars in his hands and in his feet, we need to allow them to move us. In the scars, see his love that painfully endured everything for us. In the scars, see his power that overcame death, that overcame sin, that overcame hell in a real, tangible, flesh and bones type of way. In the scars, see God's salvation plan, fulfilling all of Scripture through Christ. Further, see his mission that he has given the church to keep proclaiming this message. And finally, see his promise that he has clothed us with power from on high by his Spirit to do his will. I hope you can see the scars. Because he still bears the scars. Let's pray. God, enable our hearts to see this. Open our minds. Flood over us with your grace, God. We are so undeserving of your, even your attention. And yet you came you bled for us and died for us and rose again. And now you stand here saying, peace to you. Peace to me. Peace to us. Help our hearts to overflow with gratitude and love. Empower us to proclaim. In Jesus' name, amen.